0: Chapter Six, Part Two of Christian Non-Resistance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter Six, Part Two of Christian Non-Resistance in all its important bearings, illustrated and defended by Aidan Balu. Objection Three. MORE DIFFICULTY IN SMALL THAN LARGE MATTERS The practice of non-resistance is more difficult in small than large matters. It is not in abstaining from war and battle, or in enduring great and notorious injuries with forbearance, that non-resistance imposes the heaviest burdens. Men gather strength in such cases from the consciousness of public admiration and sympathy, and even from the magnitude of the conflict, and the consequent glory of a triumph. Extraordinary events and occasions inspire an extraordinary enthusiasm, power, and firmness of purpose. But in everyday life, where people pass through a thousand trials, consuming to the vital spirits of their being, unnoticed, unsympathized with, unpitied, and uncared for, it is by no means so easy to endure the mean, vexatious aggressions, wrongs, and insults of petty injurers. But your doctrine obliges the abused wife of a brutal husband, and the insulted and smitten victim of an insolent scoundrelism to refrain from defensive violence, and even from prosecutions at law, at least under the existing type of human government. It does not appear that you would allow even a mob to be repelled with military force, or so much as a demand to be made on the government for the protection of one's property, family, or life. It is this extreme and intolerable nicety of your doctrine to which I object, as much as to anything about it answer there is truth in the assertion that a practical exemplification of non-resistance in the small matters of everyday life is more difficult than in great matters on extraordinary occasions and is not this true of all the great virtues enjoined in law or gospel it may be easier to eschew idolatry adultery fornication murder robbery theft falsehood covetousness etc in the open gaze of public scrutiny and public opinion even under the mightiest temptation than in private, unobserved life. It may be easier to suffer the martyrdom of death, before a gaping and amazed, perhaps admiring multitude, than the petty martyrdom of a taunt, a kick, a cuff, or a rung nose, of which the multitude know nothing, and for which they might care as little. Be it so, does this change principle, or abrogate duty? What is right? What ought we all to do in small as well as large matters? These are the questions to settle, not what may chance to be the most convenient, or easy, or comfortable, or self-indulgent under momentary temptations. We have already settled them, so far as respects the duty never to resist injury with injury. Is indulgence asked for the commission of daily violations of this duty, or occasional violations of it, in what are called small matters? Go demand indulgence to commit violations of the Ten Commandments in small matters, Plead how difficult it is in everyday life not to lie a little, deceive a little, defraud a little, extort a little, hate your neighbor a little, steal a little, be murderous a little, idolatrous a little, and lascivious a little. Get your indulgence from heaven for all this, and then doubtless an indulgence will not be withheld to resist injury with injury a little, and to render evil for evil a little in ordinary matters. Till then, the law and standard of righteousness must not be relaxed to suit human convenience. Duty must be insisted on without abatement, and whoever exhibits weakness, imperfection, frailty, sin, must bear the shame and condemnation. It is in these small matters that every virtue suffers its greatest betrayals. A continual dropping wears the hardest stone. A continual unscrupulousness in little things undermines all moral principle. The ocean is made up of drops, Righteousness is an aggregate of the littles of life. He that is faithless habitually in small matters is not to be depended on in great matters. He may or may not do right. A principal reason why public institutions, laws, and measures are so repugnant to justice and humanity is that the individual consciences of the people in the small matters of ordinary life are habitually unscrupulous. If, then, non-resistance is to be insisted on at all, as a duty, it is to be insisted on in small matters as well as large, and after all that may be said of the difficulty of practicing it, we know that it has been and can be practiced. Nothing is wanting but the will to try. I will add to the numerous illustrations already given, a few others relating chiefly to individual affairs, and the so-called small matters of life. The Profane Swearer, Reproved and Subdued. Mr. Deering, a Puritan minister, being once at a public dinner, a gallant young man sat on the opposite side of the table, who, besides other vain discourse, broke out into profane swearing, for which Mr. Deering gravely and sharply reproved him. The young man, taking this as an affront, immediately threw a glass of beer in his face. Mr. Deering took no notice of the insult, but wiped his face, and continued eating as before. The young gentleman presently renewed his profane conversation, and mr Deering reproved him as before, upon which, but with more rage and violence, he flung another glass of beer in his face. Mr Deering continued unmoved, still showing his zeal for the glory of God by bearing the insult with Christian meekness and humble silence. This so astonished the young gentleman that he rose from the table, fell on his knees, and asked mr Deering's pardon and declared that if any of the company offered him similar insults, he would stab them with the sword. Here was practically verified the New Testament maxim, Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Romans chapter 12, verse 21. Anonymous The Christian Slave and His Enemy The following was first published in the London Christian Observer. A slave in the West Indies, who had originally come from Africa, having been brought under the influence of religious instruction, became singularly valuable to his owner, on account of his integrity and general good conduct. After some time his master raised him to a situation of some consequence in the management of his estate, and on one occasion, wishing to purchase twenty additional slaves, employed him to make the selection, giving him instruction to choose those who were strong, and likely to make good workmen. The man went to the slave market, and commenced his scrutiny, He had not surveyed the multitude offered for sale, before he fixed his eye upon an old decrepit slave, and told his master that he must be one. The poor fellow begged that he might be indulged, when the dealer remarked, that if they were about to buy twenty, he would give them that man into the bargain. The purchase was accordingly made, and the slaves were conducted to the plantation of their master. But upon none did the selector show half the attention and care that he did upon the poor old decrepit African. He took him to his own habitation, and laid him upon his own bed. He fed him at his own table, and gave him drink out of his own cup. When he was cold he carried him into the sunshine, and when he was hot he placed him under the shade of the coconut tree. Astonished at the attention this confidential slave bestowed upon a fellow slave, his master interrogated him upon the subject. He said, You could not take so much interest in the old man but for some special reason. HE IS A RELATION OF YOURS, PERHAPS YOUR FATHER? NO, MASSA, ANSWERED THE POOR FELLOW, HE KNOW MY FATHER. HE IS THEN AN ELDER BROTHER? NO, MASSA, HE KNOW MY BROTHER. THEN HE IS AN UNCLE, OR SOME OTHER RELATION? NO, MASSA, HE NO BE MY KINDUID AT ALL, NOR EVEN MY FRIEND. THEN ASKED THE MASTER, ON WHAT ACCOUNT DOES HE EXCITE YOUR INTEREST? HE MY ENEMY, MASSA replied the slave. He sold me to the slave-dealer, and my Bible tell me, when my enemy hunger, feed him, and when he thirst, give him drink. HOW TO OVERCOME EVIL I once had a neighbor who, though a clever man, came to me one heyday, and said, Esquire White, I want you to come and get your geese away. Why, said I, what are my geese doing?' They pick on my pig's ears when they are eating, and drive them away, and I will not have it. What can I do? said I. You must yoke them. That I have not time to do now, said I. I do not see, but they must run. If you do not take care of them, I shall, said the clever shoemaker in anger. What do you say, Esquire White? I cannot take care of them now, but I will pay you for all damages. Well, said he, You will find that a hard thing, I guess." So off he went, and I heard a terrible squalling among the geese. The next news of the geese was that three of them were missing. My children went and found them terribly mangled and dead, and thrown into the bushes. Now, said I, all keep still, and let me punish him. In a few days the shoemaker's hogs broke into my corn. I saw them, but let them remain a long time. At last I drove them out, and picked up the corn which they had torn down and fed them with it in the road. By this time the shoemaker came in great haste after them. "'Have you seen anything of my hogs?' said he. "'Yes, sir. You will find them yonder, eating some corn which they tore down in my field.' "'In your field?' "'Yes, sir,' said I. "'Hogs love corn, you know. They were made to eat. "'How much mischief have they done?' "'Oh, not much,' said I. "'Well off he went to look, and estimated the damage to be equal to a bushel and a half of corn. "'Oh no,' said I, "'it can't be.' "'Yes,' said the shoemaker, "'and I will pay you every cent of the damage.' "'No,' replied I, "'you shall pay me nothing. My geese have been a great trouble to you.' The shoemaker blushed, and went home. The next winter, when we came to settle, the shoemaker determined to pay me for my corn. "'No,' said I, "'I shall take nothing.' After some talk we parted but in a day or two I met him in the road, and fell into conversation in the most friendly manner. But when I started on, he seemed loath to move, and I paused. For a moment both of us were silent. At last, he said, I have something laboring on my mind. Well, what is it? Those geese. I killed three of your geese, and shall never rest until you know how I feel. I am sorry. And the tears came in his eyes. Oh, well, said I, never mind, I suppose my geese were provoking. I never took anything of him for it, but whenever my cattle broke into his field after this, he seemed glad, because he could show how patient he could be. Now, said the narrator, conquer yourself, and you can conquer with kindness where you can conquer in no other way. Anonymous Henry C. Wright and His Assailant The following incident in the life of Henry C. Wright shows his admirable consistency and the salutary influence of non-resistance on the offender. He was in a hotel in Philadelphia, and there engaged in a conversation on non-resistance. An officer present became enraged and struck him. Mr. Wright took no notice of the assault, but proceeded with his remarks. In a few moments the officer struck him again. Friend Wright still preserved his equanimity, and continued the conversation his assailant struck him a third time, and nearly knocked him down. He recovered himself, and though much injured by the blows of his opponent, took him by the hand, and said, I feel no unkindness towards you, and hope soon to see you at my house. He then left the company and returned home. Mr. Wright saw his assailant much sooner than he expected, for he was called up at dawn next morning, by the very man who had struck him the previous evening. He exclaimed, as he entered the house, Can you forgive me, I have been in agony all night. I thought you would strike again, or I never should have struck you. He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh a city. He that unshrinking and without a groan bears the first wound may finish all the war with more courageous silence and come off conqueror. Watts Macree the victorious little boy. I had the following anecdote from a gentleman of veracity. A little boy in Connecticut, of remarkably serious mind and habits, was ordinarily employed about a mechanics shop, where nearly all the hands were addicted to the common use of intoxicating liquors. The lad had imbibed temperance principles, and though often invited, could never be induced to partake with any of the shop's crew. At length his teacher in the Sunday school, in conversation on certain non-resistant texts of scripture, had awakened his mind to that subject, and he very conscientiously avowed his determination to try to live in accordance with this great Christian doctrine. Three or four of the harder drinkers in the shop, somewhat piqued at such precocious piety and scrupulousness of conscience, resolved to humble the lad, or at least put his new notions to the test. They resolved to force a dram of rum down his throat, by some means. Seizing an opportunity when he was left alone in the shop with themselves, they invited him to drink he refused. They then told him they should compel him. He remained calm and unmoved. They threatened him with violence. Still, he neither seemed angry nor attempted to escape, nor evinced the least disposition to yield, but insisted that it was wicked, and he could not do it. They then laid hold of him, a man at each arm, while the third held the bottle ready to force it into his mouth. Still their victim remained meek and firm, declaring that he had never injured them, and never should, but the god would be his friend and protector, however they might abuse him. The man who held the fatal bottle, up to that moment resolute in his evil purpose, was so struck by the non-resisting dignity and innocence of the lad, that, as he afterwards confessed, almost with tears, he actually felt unable to raise his hand. Twice he essayed to lift the bottle, as he placed the nose of it in the child's mouth, but his arm refused to serve him, Not the least resistance was made in this stage of the proceeding otherwise than by a meek protesting look, yet the ringleader himself was overcome in his feelings, and gave over the attempt, declaring that he could not, and would not, injure such an innocent, conscientious, good-hearted boy. Such is moral power, such is the strength by which evil may, sometimes at least, be overcome with good. COLONY OF PRACTICAL CHRISTIANS The following is another extract from the writings of Lydia M. Child. It needs no commendation. It will speak to the better feelings of the soul, and leave its sweet odor there. The highest gifts my soul has received during its world pilgrimage have often been bestowed by those who were poor, both in money and intellectual cultivation. Among these donors, I particularly remember a hard-working, uneducated mechanic from Indiana or Illinois. He told me he was one of thirty or forty New Englanders, who, twelve years before, had gone out to settle in the western wilderness. They were mostly neighbors, and had been drawn to unite together in emigration from a general unity of opinion on various subjects. For some years previous, they had been in the habit of meeting occasionally at each other's houses, to talk over their duties to God and man, in all simplicity of heart. Their library was the Gospel their priesthood the inward light. There were then no anti-slavery societies, but thus taught, and reverently willing to learn, they had no need of such agency to discover their duties to the enslaved. The efforts of peace societies had reached this secluded band only in broken echoes, and non resistance societies had no existence. But with the volume of the Prince of Peace, and hearts open to his influence, what need had they of preambles and resolutions? Rich in God-culture, this little band started for the far west. Their inward homes were blooming gardens. They made their outward in a wilderness. They were industrious and frugal, and all things prospered under their hands. But soon wolves came near the fold, in the shape of reckless, unprincipled adventurers, believers in force and cunning, who acted according to their creed. The colony of practical Christians spoke of their depredations in terms of gentlest remonstrance, and repaid them with unvarying kindness. They went farther, they openly announced, You may do us what evil you choose, we will return nothing but good. Lawyers came into the neighborhood, and offered their services to settle disputes. They answered, We have no need of you. As neighbors, we receive you in the most friendly spirit, but for us your occupation has ceased to exist. What will you do, if rascals burn your barns, and steal your harvests? we will return good for evil. We believe this is the highest truth, and therefore, the best expediency. When the rascals heard this, they considered it a marvelous good joke, and said and did many provoking things, which to them seemed witty. Bars were taken down in the night, and cows led into the cornfields. The Christians repaired the damage as well they could, put the cows in the barn, and at twilight drove them gently home, saying, Neighbor, your cows had been in my field, I have fed them well during the day, but I could not keep them all night, lest the children should suffer for their milk. If this was fun, those who planned the joke found no heart to laugh at it. By degrees, a visible change came over those troublesome neighbors. They ceased to cut off horses' tails and break the legs of poultry. Rude boys would say to a younger mother, Don't throw that stone, Bill. When I killed the chicken last week, didn't they send it to mother, because they thought chicken broth would be good for poor Mary? I SHOULD THINK YOU'D BE ASHAMED TO THROW STONES AT THEIR CHICKENS. THUS WAS EVIL OVERCOME WITH GOOD, TILL NOT ONE WAS FOUND TO DO THEM WILLFUL INJURY. YEARS PASSED ON, AND SAW THEM THRIVING IN WORLDLY SUBSTANCE BEYOND THEIR NEIGHBORS, YET BELOVED BY ALL. FROM THEM THE LAWYER AND THE CONSTABLE OBTAINED NO FEES. THE SHERIFF STAMMERED AND APOLOGIZED WHEN HE TOOK THEIR HARD-EARNED GOODS IN PAYMENT FOR THE WAR-TAX. THEY MILDLY REPLIED, "'Tis a bad trade, friend.' Examine it in the light of conscience, and see if it be not so. But while they refused to pay such fees and taxes, they were liberal to a proverb in their contributions for all useful and benevolent purposes. At the end of ten years, the public lands, which they had chosen for their farms, were advertised for sale at auction. According to custom, those who had settled and cultivated the soil were considered to have a right to bid it in at the government price, which at that time was a dollar and a quarter per acre. But the fever of land speculation then chanced to run unusually high. Adventurers from all parts of the country were flocking to the auction, and capitalists in Baltimore, Philadelphia, New York, and Boston were sending agents to buy up western lands. No one supposed that customer equity would be regarded. The first day's sale showed that speculation ran to the verge of insanity, Land was eagerly bought in at seventeen, twenty-five, and forty dollars an acre. The Christian colony had small hope of retaining their farms. As first settlers, they had chosen the best land, and persevering industry had brought it into the highest cultivation. Its market value was much greater than the acres already sold at exorbitant prices. In view of these facts, they had prepared their minds for another remove into the wilderness, perhaps to be again ejected by a similar process. But the morning their lot was offered for sale, they observed with grateful surprise that their neighbors were everywhere busy among the crowd, begging and expostulating, Don't bid on these lands. These men have been working hard on them for ten years. During all that time they never did harm to man or brute. They are always ready to do good for evil. They are a blessing to any neighborhood. It would be a sin and a shame to bid on their land. Let them go at the government price. The sale came on, the cultivators of the soil offered a dollar and a quarter, intending to bid higher if necessary. But among all that crowd of selfish, reckless speculators, not one bid over them. Without one opposing voice, the fair Acres returned to them. I do not know a more remarkable instance of evil overcome with good. The wisest political economy lies folded up in the maxims of Christ. The avenger stayed. I will add one more impressive illustration and close a copy from the advocate of peace for april eighteen forty five which appears to have quoted from the history of danish missions the history of the danish missions in greenland is well known hans agide a man of apostolic benevolence and zeal was the pioneer in those efforts to christianize the wild and savage wanderer of the frozen north and among his successors was his grandson hans agide Zabier from whose interesting diary we select the following tale of vengeance sternly purposed but graciously turned into love by the power of the gospel the law or custom of greenland requires every murder, especially that of a father to be avenged by the nearest of kin some twenty years before the arrival of sabye a man was murdered under circumstances of great atrocity in the presence of his own son the boy only thirteen years old was too young to defend his father but he did not forget the debt of vengeance due to his murderer. Fleeing for his own safety into a remote part of the country, he there fanned in his bosom the secret flame for twenty-five years, and waited only for an opportunity to let it burst forth in full and fierce revenge. The murderer was a man of so much influence, and surrounded with so many adherents ready for his defense, that the son feared to attack him. But, having persuaded a number of his own relatives to accompany him, He started at length on his long-cherished purpose of vengeance, and came in quest of his victim, near the residence of Sabier. The houses in Greenland are a species of common property. The people quit them during their short summer, and on returning the next winter, take possession of any one they may chance to find unoccupied. Winter was now beginning to stretch his icy arms over the north, but the avenger found no shelter for himself and his associates in the work of vengeance. Only one was vacant and that belonged to the preacher of peace and forgiveness. But Sabier, though well apprised of his purpose, let him have the house, and treated him with his wanted courtesy and kindness. These attentions touched the avenger's heart, and he came to thank Sabier, and repeated his visits so often that he apologized at length for their frequency by saying, You are so amiable that I cannot keep away from you. After the lapse of several weeks, he said, I should like to know something of that great Lord of Heaven, about whom you say so much, and some of my relations wish to learn, too. Sabier granted his request, and found ten or twelve of the company anxious for instruction. He sent a catechist to live with them, and was much gratified at their progress, especially that of the avenger, who frequently left his fishing to hear instruction, and at length resolved to ask for baptism. In the month of May, Canuck came to Sabier, and said, Teacher, will you baptize me? You know I'm obedient. I KNOW GOD, AND MY WIFE, AS WELL AS I, WISHES TO BECOME A BELIEVER. YES, REPLIED THE PREACHER, YOU KNOW SOMETHING OF GOD. YOU KNOW HE IS GOOD. YOU SEE HOW HE LOVES YOU, AND DESIRES TO MAKE YOU HAPPY. BUT HE DESIRES ALSO TO HAVE YOU OBEY HIM. I DO LOVE HIM, EARNESTLY REJOINED THE AVENGER. I WILL OBEY HIM. BUT, ANSWERED Sabier, IF YOU WISH TO OBEY HIM, YOU MUST KILL NOBODY. YOU HAVE OFTEN HEARD THIS COMMAND thou shalt not kill. Canuck shook his head in great emotion, and only said, half to himself, hard doctrine, hard doctrine. Hear me, good Canuck, continued the man of God. I know you have come to avenge the murder of your father. This you must not do if you wish to become a believer. But, retorted the avenger with a flash of indignation gleaming from his eye, he murdered my father, my own father. I saw it, but could not help him. And now I must punish the murderer. You grieve me, said the man of peace. How? asked the avenger. Because you seem resolved to murder. Only him who deserves to die. But the great Lord of heaven says thou shalt not kill. I will not. Only him. But you must not kill even him. Have you forgotten how often during the winter you heard this command? Avenge not thyself, but rather give place unto wrath, for vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. But, asks the avenger, Shall the wicked murder with impunity? No, he shall not. God will punish him. When? Perhaps in this world, but certainly at the day of judgment, when he will reward every one according to his deeds. That is so long, replied Canuck. My countrymen and relations will blame me if I do not myself avenge my father now. If you did not know the will of God, I should say nothing, but now I must not be silent. This is hard, said the avenger. What shall I do? You must not kill him. You must even forgive him. Forgive him, exclaimed the avenger. Your doctrine is very strange and difficult. The doctrine, rejoined the preacher, IS NOT MINE, BUT CHRIST'S. KANUCK sighed DEEPLY, BUT MADE NO REPLY, AND SABIER CONTINUED, PERHAPS YOUR FATHER WAS NOT INNOCENT, HE TOO MAY HAVE KILLED SOMEBODY. AS TO THAT, REPLIED KANUCK, I DO NOT KNOW, I ONLY KNOW THAT THIS MAN DESERVES TO DIE. WELL, ANSWERED SABIER, TURNING TO LEAVE THE AVENGER, I HAVE DONE, KILL HIM, IF YOU WILL, BUT REMAIN AN UNBELIEVER, and expect his children one day to kill you in turn. "'You are amiable no longer,' retorted the man of blood. "'You speak hard words.' "'No, Canuck,' replied the man of peace. "'I love you still, and therefore wish you not to sin against God, who will do justice both to you and your adversary.' Savier turned to go, but Canuck cried after him, "'Stay, teacher, I will speak to my relations.' His relations urged Canuck day after day to revenge, and threatened him with the curses of his kindred, and the scorn of his countrymen, if he shrunk from avenging his murdered father. The bosom of the son seemed a theatre of conflicting emotions. The preacher, in his visits to him, perceived the struggle, and, without taking any notice of the particular subject, read such portions of scripture, and such hymns, as led to peaceful and forgiving thoughts. Some days after, Canuck returned to the preacher. His countenance, his manner, everything about him, indicated a violent struggle. I will, said he, I will not. I hear, and I do not hear. I never felt so before. What will you, asked the preacher, and what will you not? I will forgive him, and I will not forgive him. I have no ears, and yet I have ears. When you will not forgive, answered Sabier then your unconverted heart speaks, and would dissuade you, and when you will forgive, then your better heart speaks. Which will you obey? I was so moved, said the avenger, when you spoke yesterday, that my heart wished to obey. See, then, ought you not, said Sabye, to feel that it is the voice of your heavenly father speaking in your heart? He bids you be like him, and he giveth sunshine and showers to his foes as well as his friends. Think of your Savior, too, and strive to resemble him. Did he ever hate his enemies, or return their curses on their own heads? When smitten, did he smite back? When persecuted from city to city, did he return evil upon his prosecutors? Did he return evil upon his persecutors? When led to the cross like a lamb to the slaughter, did he open his mouth? Yes, but it was to pray for his murderers. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This appeal touched the avenger's heart. A tear stood in his eye, and earnestly he replied, Yes, yes, that was praiseworthy, but he was better than we. Yes, infinitely better, rejoined Sabye, but if we have a good will, God will give us strength. Hear how a man like you and me can pray for his murderers. The preacher then read the martyrdom of Stephen, and Canuck, drying his eyes, said, Wicked men, but he is happy, HE IS CERTAINLY WITH GOD IN HEAVEN. MY HEART IS SO MOVED, BUT GIVE ME A LITTLE TIME, AND WHEN I HAVE BROUGHT MY OTHER HEART TO SILENCE, I WILL COME AGAIN. SOON Canuck RETURNED WITH AN ALTERED countenance THAT SPOKE THE PEACE AND JOY OF HIS HEART. NOW, SAID HE, I AM HAPPY. I HATE NO MORE. I HAVE FORGIVEN. MY WICKED HEART SHALL BE SILENT. DID YOU NOT SEE HOW MOVED I WAS WHEN YOU READ ABOUT HIM ON THE CROSS, PRAYING FOR HIS MURDERERS? THEN I VOWED IN MY HEART I WILL FORGIVE. I HAVE FORGIVEN. Now I hope I and my wife, who has never hated, may be baptized. His request was granted, and when the day arrived for the ceremony, he gave a simple and touching account of his faith. Tears streamed from his eyes, and he knelt for baptism. And at the close of the service he said, Receive me now as a believer, I will hate no more. We will love each other, and all men. To the murderer of his father he soon after sent a message, saying, I am now a believer, you have nothing to fear. He even invited the murderer to his house, and received him in a most friendly manner. Being invited to return the visit, he went alone, but to show the heathen murderer in contrast with the Christian, Canuck found, on his way back, a hole cut in his kayak, or boat, for the purpose of drowning him. He soon stopped out the water, and said with a smile, Ah, he is still afraid, but I'll never harm him. Vengeance is no longer mine. I leave him to God, and pray that he may see his sins as I have seen my own. CONCLUSION Who can contemplate such practical exemplifications of Christian non-resistance as these, and not be ravished with the excellence and loveliness of the sublime doctrine? Can we turn around and gaze on the battlefield, the hospital of mangled mortality, the gaudy military parade, the pomp of blood-stained chieftains, or into the mere ordinary affairs of life, on the scuffles retaliations resentments duels litigations and endless quarrels of a world infatuated with resisting violence can we look on these things without heart sickness and disgust how base despicable and aberrant are they all compared with the spiritual heroism the moral bravery the glorious self-sacrifice the life preserving heart reforming soul redeeming works of genuine christianity o my soul come not thou into their secret unto their assembly mine honour Be not thou united and shall those who ought to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth dishonour their high calling and defile their garments by engaging in the conflicts of human ambition violence and revenge shall they lust after the dainties of cannibalism admire the splendours of martial idolatry and delight themselves in the acts of mortal cruelty if risen with christ ought they not to seek the things of christ inhale the perfumes of his spirit follow in his footsteps and make it their supreme satisfaction to do the will of the Father? Is it for them to fly from the dangers of Gethsemane, to look with despair from afar, on the non-resistant cross, and to make themselves one with a mutually defiant and destructive world? Shall they see lions in the way, and fear to go forth? Shall they stand shivering like the sluggard, because it is cold, and so neglect to plough? Does it become them to complain that the duties of love are hard, that non-resistance is impracticable, impossible, or extremely difficult, when its principle is so godlike, its spirit so heavenly, its exemplification so beautiful, its fruits so refreshing, and its achievements so glorious? What if it demand a strict discipline? What if it require some severe exertions? What if it impose some manly endurance? What if it offer an opportunity to perform some exploits of moral heroism? shall it therefore be unattractive to great souls nay rather let it seem the more worthy of a holy and generous enthusiasm let its calls for volunteers appeal more thrillingly to a noble ambition an ambition to be and do something worthy of our divine parentage worthy of the love that has purchased our redemption with the tears and groans and blood of the cross worthy of immortality worthy of living and dying for to save one life to recover one lost brother To make one heart holy and happy or even to qualify ourselves by self-denial from the indwelling spirit of the highest is infinitely more worthy of a whole life's cares and vigils than all the wealth pomp and splendor which the world's favorite destroyers ever acquired by the sword god forbid that we should glory in anything save the cross of our lord jesus christ how hardly man this lesson learns to smile and bless the hand that spurns to see the blow to feel the pain but render only love again. This spirit not to earth is given, one had it, he came from heaven. Reviled, rejected, and betrayed, no curse he breathed, no plaint he made, but whom in death's deep pang he sighed, prayed for his murderers, and died. Edmiston End of chapter 6, part 2